We're here for you. Lord, we want to be people for your glory. We don't want to be people who say we're for your glory and then actually just live for ourselves. Just live for the next thing. And we worship the unchanging, eternal God over all. Who has come. Who has rescued us, forgiven us of our sin and brought us into relationship with him. Lord, thank you that we can know you now. Father, thank you that whoever is watching online right now, whoever is here in this room, they can know you, the God of the universe, the God who made them right now. So come, Lord, now, would you come and speak to us through your word? Just say, Lord, your, your word is true. It's good. It's profitable. Oh, Lord, it is what we need. It is the bread we need. Come feed us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? Thank you, guys. All right. A bit quieter today. May weekend, I think. Um, but just so good to see those of you who are here and um, uh, those of you who are online. Good to see you guys as well. Today we're back in our series, Heart and House, this preaching series in 1 and 2 Samuels. We're going through all 55 chapters, and um, we'll probably be done in about 18 months with some breaks in between. And there's quite a lot going on in our, our passage today in chapter 4, and uh, I just don't want to mess about it. Let's just get there, all right? So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We're talking today about voids of glory, what happens when we don't live for the glory of God and when the glory of God departs. So uh, turn to chapter 4, and it says this, Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting about in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. God has come into the camp, he said. No, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites 
were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried down to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened to my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of, the God, of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Living life under the pressures of the social norms that we have today can be pretty crushing. For some, it's more the traditional pressures of lifelong duty to family and institutions like your workplace, political parties. We were talking about that just now. Schools, clubs, churches. It's unlikely to be conscious that those people who are committed to those institutions are often trying to find meaning and satisfaction by the relationships in them and by the building of these institutions, right? You see it when it all comes crashing down around them. When someone they thought they could trust in those institutions does something, says something that they don't like, and suddenly their whole world is torn apart. I've seen it so many times in rugby clubs, in running clubs, athletics clubs, a bit of a theme going on here, football clubs, but also in families, in churches, people's lives totally destroyed because the institution has let them down. People let you down. They might even be right, you know, but even still, 
it wouldn't have crushed them had they not put all their hope in that organization, all their hope in those relationships, all their hope in that family. Now, that's some people, but more commonly today, it's actually the opposite in many ways. It's this kind of individualistic, hyper-consumeristic world where we're trying to find our identity, our meaning. So if the traditional way was to look outward, more modern way is to look inward. Find my meaning and my satisfaction by looking in and in myself somewhere I'll find the true me. And when I find the true me, I'll be happy. And we're constantly trying to find unique expressions of me. But it's a bit futile because actually it's probably more likely that algorithms that filter your wants that are defining how you become. You're looking inward for meaning and satisfaction and depending on fresh expressions for you to find a real you when actually when you kind of look around and work out where you're trying to find these unique expressions, you will discover that all along you're just like lots of other people. Think about it. You go to that gig. This band describe me. They're just, this is where I connect. I connect with these people. Look around. They look just like you. Why are they wearing clothes just like you? You're so unique. Lindsay and I did this with uh, naming our children. <laughs> whenever, we, uh, whenever we first got married, we had this discussion, and uh, we came up with these names. And we're like, these names are so unique. We love them. Isn't it amazing that we both love these names? It's incredible. It's like we're made, we're, we're just so made for each other. And they're like half our mates have the same names that we thought were so unique. We think that we are finding ourselves by looking in. But the truth is, you will let you down. You are not all that. And you are not that satisfying. Oh, Ian, what an encouraging preacher. Woo, come on. Hallelujah. Besides, in your attempt to look like an individual, you end up looking like everybody else. The truth is that to pursue meaning and satisfaction outwards or inwards will, in the end, crush you. We need to stop looking it out or in and start looking up. But here lies a trap that so often deceives us. Those of us who would call ourselves Christians would say, right, yeah, no, I live for the glory of God. Do you? Because often what I think we do is we're saying that we live to the glory of God. We've given up our old life. We're following after Jesus. We're living all for him. But actually, the relationship with God is really about God providing for the things that you've given your heart to that aren't him. You find you pray more when you feel like you need this something that will help find meaning and satisfaction in this life for you. That isn't him. And if it's not him, then we're missing it. 
If we truly want to be satisfied, we must turn to God for His glory, not turn Him to serve our glory. We don't turn to Him to serve us, not to help us serve the glory of self or the glory of some institution we're working to build. Here in chapter 4, we see the Israelites, the Philistines, and Eli's house all making the same mistake. They turn to God while their hearts are still given to another. But before we look at how these people turn to God for their own glory, the passage screams to us about the glory of God that is staring them in the face. First thing I want to say is that we have seen his glory. God has revealed himself. First three chapters have been like a dawning of hope. At the end of this time of the judges, which was brutal, it was dark, it was not expressing what Israel was supposed to be as the people of God, united in heart and mind, out of love and worship for God, the one true God, Yahweh. And we've seen this light dawning through this prophet Samuel, but interestingly, from chapter 4 through to the end of chapter 6, we don't hear a thing about Samuel. And the reason we don't hear a thing about Samuel is because the people have turned away from the word of the Lord. Samuel is silenced. The prophet is silenced. The word of God is silenced. But God himself provides in the story here the hope of the people, even when they turn away. And it's told through a piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark could seem pretty insignificant to us. Oh, yeah, it's just it's a bit of furniture in a sanctuary in ancient days. No, no, no. The Ark was far more than that. The Ark was normally positioned in the most holy place between the cherubim inside the tabernacle, enthroned. It said, God is king. God is majestic. It contained the Ten Commandments. It was called the Ark of the Covenant, this promise with God's people. Because it was a sign of God speaking truth to people. God speaks to his people. The Ark had on top of it a mercy seat. For the yearly sacrifice at Yom Kippur that was to absolve the sin of the people. It was a sign that God, in all his holiness and in all his majesty, and no matter that he reigned over all the earth, he would forgive them. God forgives. And the ark was positioned at the heart of the tabernacle, in the heart of the camp, in the heart of the nation. Why? Because God was with them. God is with them. God is with us. The ark was a display of Yahweh's glory. They couldn't have looked at it without knowing that symbolism and seeing that the glory of the Lord was with them. 
It's a sign that he pointed to the God who rules over us, who over us. He speaks to us. He forgives us of our sin, and he's with us. God did not hide his glory from his people. This is the God we know. And the reason I say the ark brings glory to God is because glorifying God is to display him in such a way that we can't help but share in wonder at who he is. And it is what it means to glorify God, to see him displayed for who he truly is. The God who reigns over us from the heavens and the earth, over the heavens and the earth, speaks to us, he's with us, he forgives us. How can that possibly be? And now the ark actually sounds like someone I know. The one who is the radiance of the glory of God. The one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. The one who is the truth, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. In him we find the yes and the amen. The one who takes away the sins of the world. The ark is a sign of God's glory, but Jesus came as the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of, of his majesty in heaven. John writes in the introduction to his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God was with the Israelites, displayed in the ark in the sanctuary, but the one it pointed to is with us. His name is Jesus. He has come for us. He's with us now by the Spirit. So as we look to the response of the Philistines, as we look to the response of the Israelites and the house of Eli, I want us to remember what the ark is pointing forward to. They had this sign of God's glory with them. And we have the fulfillment, the better ark, Jesus with us. Second thing I want to say is that we have failed to see his glory. The Philistines were Israel's greatest enemy at the time. And after that first battle, the Philistines had won so comfortably, they heard this resounding cry from the Israelite camp about two miles away. Their thunderous roar terrified them. Well, actually, was it the thunderous roar? I don't know. I think what really terrified them was the stories they had heard of the power of God. They thought, gods are in the camp. We've never seen this before. What are we going to do? And the reason they thought that was because they'd heard of what God had done in previous generations and an even mightier nation, Egypt. Who will deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods, they ask. 
They didn't know at the stage that Yahweh was the one true God. But they'd heard of his might. They knew the stories of God's judgment on stubborn Pharaoh, plagues, and how God rescued his people from slavery. It's a terrifying thought. But what, was even more, what is even more terrifying to me as I read these pages is that the Philistines' response was to see something of the glory of God and of his might and his power and that they could still turn round to one another and say, let's stand up and be men. Let's go and fight. We can do this. That's terrifying to me because that pride and arrogance is so prevalent still today. Someone could hear of a a work of God. They could hear the good news about Jesus and his overcoming of death and sin and suffering. And still... I, I don't know, I, I, think, I think I could do it my own way. I think I'll just live this different way. I need to live the ways of Jesus. That's frightening. And at first, they, have been, they must have been very satisfied with that decision. High fives all around, because they won that next battle resoundingly. And not only did they win, but they stole the ark. Their desire for their outward glory the glory of the nation of, Phil, of uh, Philistia. Sorry to myself. Of the Philistines. In that moment, they thought they'd won. And by all accounts, if you were an Israelite, you'd have thought, oh, project's over. Even God, even the sign of God with us has been stolen. It can look as though the world is winning at times, that the glory of the world is conquering the church of Christ. But God had a plan then, and he has a plan now. What about the Israelites? What was going on in their camp during all this? The Philistine response was shockingly similar to how Israel were treating God. Certainly, in leadership. So when they lose that first battle, you look at their response and you might actually think, hey, that's quite a good response. They realized that they hadn't gone with the presence of the Lord. And so they, they call a meeting and they say, right, let's go and get the Ark of the Covenant. They, they have this little brainstorm and think, ah, strategy wrong. Let's get the strategy right. Let's go and get the Ark of the Covenant, bring it into the camp, and then we'll go out and fight and surely we'll win then. Come on, boys, go get the ark. But that, the elders' impromptu strategy meeting was done with Philistine-like motives. What do I mean by that? I mean that this was about using God for their own means, which is exactly what the Philistines will do in the next chapter when they try to add God's power to Dagon's to help them with their success. The elders' request for an ark 
was like the demand they would make of Samuel the prophet in chapter 8, verse 4, when they want a king. They don't want a king for all the right reasons, to unite them in one heart and the worship of God and for the glory of God. No, no, no. They wanted a king so that they could be as powerful as these other nations like the Philistines. You see how that happens? It can look like you're doing the right things, that your faith is genuine, that you're really after God, but you're not after God at all. You're using God for your own glory. It's subtle. It's deceptive. You must watch for it. God's people are not just called to do the right things and come up with the right strategies. I've seen this so many times. People read about a thing, or they simply try to copy it. Oh, there's this church in Seattle. There's this church in Washington. There's this church I've heard about in Iran, these house churches. There's this church movement over in Turkey. Let's do what they're doing, and we'll receive God's blessing. I'd put this to you. God is much less concerned about our strategies than is about, is about our hearts. God wants our hearts. We're not that clever. <laughs> Don't think it's all about strategy and vision. It's about heart. He's jealous for us, and he wants us to be truly surrendered to displaying his glory. Now, there's wisdom in learning from others, taking a lead from other churches and movements. There's even the fact that we should have outside influence and apostolic oversight, people who speak in. But God is not primarily concerned with strategy or how we do things. He's concerned with our heart. Prayerful strategies to reach our city and our nation are great. Serving and loving your neighbor is great. Establishing new grace communities is great. Meeting faithfully on Sundays is great. Being led in worship is great. Reading your Bible is great. But what is the end goal of all of those things? Jesus tells us that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. None of that stuff matters if your heart is not beating to the rhythm of the glory of God. Now, Samuel contrasted the house of Eli and the elders involved in these decisions, not because he would be a more strategic, dynamic leader, but because his heart was given to God and to his house. From birth, he was dedicated to the Lord to displaying God with his life and not being about himself or simply about the institution. I've seen plenty of leaders who have all the gifts you would want. I mean, incredible leaders who say the right things, who do the right things. You love their preaching. They're theologically accurate, in my opinion. And you think, great, let's follow them. But in the end, so often, so much more often than we would want, 
turns out that their hearts were divided. That really it was about their glory, or it was about the glory of the church they were building that they'd attached their name to. It's no surprise then that when these people who serve them, serve their churches, they feel let them down, they end up in some kind of moral failure, spiritual abuses and leadership, affairs. Their hearts, in the end, are exposed for what they were, living to the glory of the wrong thing. What a contrast that is to the days of Moses and Joshua. Leaders who said they would not enter the land unless God's presence goes with them. Glasgow Grace, we are not looking for polished performers in our leaders. We're looking for people who want to live their lives to the glory of God, no matter what that means for their own glory, their own reputation. We want people to look at our lives and not say, oh, wow, look how impressive they are. Wow, Cameron, what an impressive guy you are. (laughs) No, we want people to say, Cameron, you're not that impressive. But God, the God you serve is clearly impressive. The God that you follow is doing incredible things in your life. I can see the satisfaction that you have in him that you did not have before. I'd far rather someone up here stuttering to the glory of God than I would someone who has all the ability and all the right and crafted words, but whose heart is divided. The problem with the elders of Israel and the Philistine leaders was that they put the glory of their nations before the glory of God. The problem with Eli's priestly house was that it wasn't a house for God, it was a house for self-indulgence. Their hearts were captivated by their own glory instead of the glory of God. And now we have it in chapter 4, judgment, the judgment that God had spoken through Samuel in chapter 3 that happens in one breath. (laughs) This messenger comes, he's mourning, dust on his head, and he says this, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Just like that. When the messenger came to Eli, the author makes the point to describe where Eli is sitting. He's sitting on a chair, and that word chair also means throne, and he falls by a gate, and the gate is where the judge would have sat to make his judgments. He was sitting on his throne, and when he fell off because he was so fat from all of the indulgences that he was eating in the temple, in the tabernacle with his sons, The judgment of God was clear for all to see. He had been dethroned. We need to be real about what is going on in the world and in the church right now. Many leaders have been exposed as corrupt. Power, sex, and money 
are the visible expressions of leaders who have been living to the glory of self and to the glory of their institutions that they put their name to instead of the glory of God. People who are more concerned about their reputation than the reputation of God, more concerned about displaying how many numbers they have on a Sunday than how many hearts are truly transformed into living, relation, in living relationships with God. Let me say to you, where leaders who have been corrupt are exposed and removed from their positions, glory to God. It is a sign of hope that God is making his church holy, purifying it. It is not a moment for despair. Yes, it's sad. Yes, it's disappointing. But it's also a moment of hope like we see here in Israel. Because as the chapters keep coming, we will see that God is raising up others, first with Samuel, then with David, uh, then with Saul, then with David, to redeem Israel. And there would be a better king who would come later to redeem us all. And his name's Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so in the church, when it's exposed, we can say hallelujah because we want to be people about the glory of Christ. We want to have people who are leading not for their own glory but for the glory of God who unite us and help us to worship him with all we've got, not concerned with how they look but with how God's reputation is spread around the city. The last thing I want to say to us is that when God's glory was removed, there was hope. Phineas is killed and his wife gives birth and dies herself. She names her son Ichabod, an orphan, and it literally means no glory. The glory of God has departed, she says. Israel had counted on God to turn up and protect his own reputation when they brought the ark. And when he didn't do that, judgment came at home before it came abroad. And what we see there is actually much more than the ark of the covenant going elsewhere being stolen, a defeat. Something much more than that is going on. We see Exodus imagery. And actually what should be happening here, according to Deuteronomy 28, is that the people of God who have been disobedient should be removed from the land and judged themselves. So yes, judgment happens at home, but they're not removed from the land like they should be. Instead, the ark, the presence of God himself, leaves the nation, leaves the land, and is taken into enemy territory. And in being taken into enemy territory, what we're going to find out next week when Jesus brings the message is that in the 
temple of Dagon in enemy territory, when it looks like they've lost, there is a resurrection. It is Dagon, the Philistine god, who ends up face down. And the Ark of the Covenant is proven to have the presence of God in the midst of death, in the midst of defeat. And there is new life, resurrection, and the ark is returned. And of course, that means it was a foreshadow of a far greater battle, one where the king of the Jews was shamed and slain outside of the city, outside of heaven, where God, in exodus from heaven, and even from this holy city, Jerusalem, was taken and killed. But three days later, he rose again from the grave. And we have great victory in him. New life. And we now can live to the glory of God. The king is on his throne, glory himself. And so we can live now our lives by the power of the Spirit that He has poured out to the glory of God. Because He went outside of the camp. He went outside of the land. He went outside of the city. He went outside of heaven in order for us to be brought in to the presence of God. We can have a new life, new birth, and be brought in with Christ. At Ebenezer, a stone will be hoisted high when finally they win that battle to the glory of God. And one day, at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13, we will see his glory and live to his glory for an eternity of satisfaction. Let's not be tempted by the glory of self. Let's not be tempted by even the glory of family or institutions. So many of these things are good things. But we must live to the glory of God through those things. Everything we do to His glory, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. God wants your heart. He adores you. He's jealous for you. He wants you. He wants every part of you. And you know what? That's what you're made for. And it just happens to be the most satisfying place you can be in life. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much that you have come from heaven to earth. You've humbled yourself. You have been willing to take on our shame, that you've been willing to go to Golgotha outside of Jerusalem, outside of the holy city, and to die in our place so that we could go free, so that we uh, would have this Lamb of God come and take away our sin on the ultimate mercy seat on the cross. Blood shed But now, because our sins are forgiven, 
And because you have overcome, there is new life in you. Lord, would, would that message go deep into our hearts? Would we know it? Would we love it? Would it be our freedom into glory, true glory, the glory of our King, Jesus? Amen. All right, we're going to go into a time of uh, communion together. And um, what I'd love us to do is just reflect on what it meant for Jesus to go outside of the city so that we could come in to his presence, for Jesus to leave heaven, exiled so that we could come near, so that we could come in to his blessing. And so when you take the bread and this juice, which represents the wine and the blood of Christ, would you take it with you and think on Christ? Remember him. Remember what he has done. What he has done for you because he was jealous for you, because he was willing to come and die in your place. The bread symbolizing the body that he gave for you. The wine, the juice, a sign of his blood shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. All is changed because of the cross. Take it in your own time while we worship. If you don't know Jesus, please, not your time yet. When you give your heart to God, and you say, I want to live to the glory of God, I want to live for Jesus. In that moment, don't take communion. Until then, you can just observe. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your, uh, this communion, this meal that we take together, remembering you. Pray, God, that now in your presence we'd remember you, remember what you've done, and that we'd sink deep in our hearts. Amen. Um.